Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37, beginning to read with verse 12. <clears throat> Speaking of Joseph and the, his family. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out to the, of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? And he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when he saw them afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it and uh, delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness. And do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him uh, out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when... Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped him of his tunic, uh, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked and behold, there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then the Midianite traders passed on by, so the brothers pulled, a, pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dripped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him without doubt. Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites 
had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. May the Lord bless this reading to our good and holy use. I'm focusing this morning on family sins. Inasmuch as sin looks for opportunity to rise up and free itself and go do its worst upon whomever it might seize, so it is that oftentimes the family is the environment where sin displays itself most terribly. Think of people that would never treat each other uh, that rudely, who get divorced from each other and just uh, treat each other so so horribly in that kind of uh, transaction. We think of uh, the first family, Adam and Eve, whose, whose son Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. And here we see this picture of where the, the family of God in this day that was the essentially this one and the same with the church of Christ in this day. Uh, it was not an ungodly family or a family that knew nothing about the Lord, but it was one of the most enlightened family, the most enlightened family in the whole world. And yet we see this a horrible sin, this crime committed that runs from the beginning of this text even to the end where poor old Jacob in his old age is tried right to the core of his being with the thought that his son has been killed. And as he says, I will go down to my grave mourning my son. He, he must have felt, these are the words, these words reflect the feeling that, that he felt like the life was ebbing out of him, that he was, that this was going to destroy him and that he would die mourning the death of his son. Now, we know it didn't work out that way, but this is the agony of the family. Again, sin looks for opportunity. You know, the robber uh, cannot rob the house upon which he has not lit, looked or upon which he has no insight. Uh, the rapist cannot rape that woman that he has not seen and observed and lusted after. Uh, that money cannot be stolen unless the uh, clerk of the company has knowledge of how the company works, and how the budgets are done, and how money could be stolen or uh, concealed. The stealing of it could be concealed here and there upon the books. So uh, sin looks for opportunity. One of the ways that we can guard ourselves against sin is to recognize this and to then when our eyes the eye gates of our lives, when they, when they focus upon something or someone and there are designs of sin, we know ourselves. We, we know, the, we know the, uh, the, the development of sin and how it matures and how it gets greater and greater control over somebody in their lives. So when we see these things, we ought to stop ourselves right away and we say, I can see the end of this. I do not want to go, so I'm going to resist the temptation now. And the Bible says resist temptation and, 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 and it will flee from you or it will go from you. But if we coddle these things, if we let them develop, uh, they will be the master over us. And so much of this happens in our dear families. Now, sanctification is the very opposite of this. 
In sanctification, we look upon uh, those who are in our families and uh, we, we see them in the light of the Lord. And so instead of coveting what they have or envying what they have or hating what they have, we thank God for what they have. Then the Bible says to me, us men, says that to, uh, to cherish the wife of your youth. You see that how the, the psychological principle operates. We see the person we love, that we see the person whom we've had a history with, who has had the willingness to marry us, and we think fond thoughts about them. We cherish them. So that in this wonderful little environment we have that's called the family, instead of despising these things or letting or just not cherishing them, not letting them be precious in our eyes, we we disdain them or we look upon look look in other areas of our lives for this or that value that we think is better. And so you can you can go one way or the other. Now in this story of Joseph being sold to the Midianites <clears throat> to be sold uh, in slavery to Egypt totally incongruous. Israel was free. Egypt represented slavery. Why should Israel be in bondage to Satan's people, to the, to the Egyptians? But that's what the story details. And so, <clears throat> and so we see here, this is the story or the account of it. Now I want, as I work my way through here, I want you to, to see the, you could, in literary means you could call these the delicious details of how this happened. God uses his words very carefully to show um, the lustfulness of these situations and how the people were lusting after evil instead of um, instead of uh, cherishing the good. They were looking upon evil and they were their eyes got big as they looked upon evil. And then we have to look at our, our own lives and our own hearts and our own eyes and say, what, how are our eyes operating? Are we, are we allowing ourselves to be seduced by evil? Or do we see the light of God's goodness and we're drawn to that light? instead of the darkness. So we start here and we see that, um, that this tale started with the brightest of ideas. Uh, Jacob wanted his son Joseph to go and visit his sons. Uh, his father was thinking about his other sons, his other boys. And he cherished Joseph, but he wanted Joseph to go and be an encouragement to his brothers. And so he, he calls Joseph and he tells him, to, that he wants him to go and to, to see how the brothers are doing. And Joseph is very willing to do that. Joseph is happy upon his mission. All young people enjoy receiving a commission of responsibility to go and do something. And so this is Joseph's commission, and he's going about it to happily to do it. But we see that as soon as his brothers saw him, that the problems began. We see in verse 18, it says, now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, in other words, it didn't take him, it didn't take proximity or closeness to incite the evil of their hearts. But as soon as they knew who he was, the evil of their hearts began to work. 
And it says, Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. That is, they worked together. It wasn't just one brother that was conceiving evil. No, they, they all they're all of their minds together, these, these 11 brothers, these 11 minds, these 11 separate minds, without any nudging or urging, they began to work together to conspire against their brother. You think of the evil of that. You think of the iniquity of that and the wickedness of that. But it happened. They conspired against him to kill him when they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Uh, is, uh, is, uh, is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. We shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become then of his dreams. So first they conspired to kill him. And that's, of course, against the sixth commandment, isn't it? Thou shalt not kill. The brothers had heard this commandment. Uh, you know, from the Lord. They knew about Cain and Abel. Uh, Moses had not summarized the commandments yet, but these commandments were understood in Israel. And so, uh, but the, the moment that they saw him, they, they got these designs to conspire against him. And then in verse 19, we see that the focus of their wrath, the focus of their anger, the focus of their hatred is, is upon this dream, this dreamer. What was the dream? The dream was that the brothers and the father would bow down before him. Now, it could be taken negatively, but it could be taken positively. If in God's good providence, you don't know what God was going to do. You don't know the circumstances of the dream. They could only think in their own limited minds negatively about these things. When we see each other, what do we do? Do we first think of the negative way? Do we think of all the negative circumstances that could be possible? Or do we look to the Lord and say, Lord, what, what, are, what, are, what, are, what do these circumstances mean? Now, in this case, <clears throat> the dream was sent by God. And so their hatred was directed against the inspiration of God to Joseph. What, what, the, what was that inspiration about? What was this bowing down? Was the bowing down to, the, to, to, jo to Joseph, was it uh, a servile kind of uh, vainglorious enjoyment? Of his brother's servitude? No! The dream had to do with the famine that the family would go through, that the whole region would go through. The dream had to do with his brothers finding salvation, survival in Egypt as they came down to, to beg from the Egyptians that they might give them some food. And there, when they came on that day, there was their own brother, who they didn't recognize, but there was their own brother sitting in the place of power, like the attorney general of the land. And on that day, indeed, they did bow down before him, and servile they were. They, they were prostrate before him, and begging him that he might give them food that the family of God could survive. But they didn't understand all that. All they could look upon were the things that were superficial. All they could do was think superficially about the, the evil that they might surmise. They, they cast the worst possible look or appearance upon what God had showed them. Instead of uh, like Joseph or Jacob, it said he took these things to heart because he knew even though his first impulse was negative, that knowing the Lord as he did, he ought to take care and think about it 
uh, in a deeper way. And so <clears throat> uh, they, they hate the dream. Uh, this, this story so parallels, uh, and I'm sure the medieval church would just focus upon how this was almost a, an allegory for Christ. Because Christ comes to find his people, much like Joseph comes to find him. And the, the hatred that was cast upon Christ when he came, was it not upon his dream, the dream of the gospel? And the more he spoke about the kingdom of God, the more he spoke about uh, having to die for sin. The, the fact that the Israelites themselves were contaminated and sinful and worthy of death. The more he spoke about these things, the more he was hated. And so uh, in Joseph's life, they hated the dream. And in Christ's life, they hated the dream also. This, this understanding that Christ carried with him, that he could save his people or that he would save his people from their sin. And so in verse 23 and following, when they, when he, as soon as he comes there, <clears throat> they strip him, they rip his clothes off him, this coat of many colors. Um, they, uh, in your, in your um, bulletin, it said they stripped him of two things. They stripped him of the coat which was obvious, the coat was a signal of his father's affection for him. How did those in Christ's day hate him even more because he was loved by the father? They envied him for the dearness, for the preciousness with which he was held. When his heavenly father announced at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Were those words ever heard? Uh, like that from the heavens, thundering forth from the heavens for any other man that had ever been born. Until the coming of his son, no. But he was hated for the precious relationship. And so here they, they stripped him of this coat. The coat was a special coat. The coat of many colors, the Bible says. And uh, they, 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 But the coat symbolized the special love of the father for this youngest boy. You know, we, as people, we live and learn. And uh, as we go on in our lives, we often learn that we, we weren't as thoughtful as we might be with our oldest children. And so we try, we try to sanctify ourselves and we try to get better at our older age and do things better or differently than we did before. And so this is the pattern of Jacob's life. But the brothers, instead of, instead of rejoicing, in their father's sanctification and rejoicing in the knowledge that their father had gained from the Lord over the years of his life. They hated the little boy or the younger brother for this. They hated the way his father looked at him. They hated the way his father spoke to him. They hated the way the father's hand would go upon, upon uh, Joseph's shoulder. They could just see the affection that he had for this young lad. And so it was represented in the coat and the clothing that the father had bestowed upon his child. And so as soon as he arrived, they stripped that from him. Now they stripped both the coat. They also stripped him of his place in the family. You, you see that there are a number of sins that are going on here. <clears throat> um, they, uh, he had, he had a, play, a very place of endearment in the family. They each had places of endearment too, but they they treated Joseph as if he was no son at all. They sold him into slavery. They put him in the pit. They, they, they were considering killing him. 
And so uh, they stripped Joseph of both sonship and also this code of affection that he had. And, uh, and so this was a, this was a th sin of thievery. You know, the Eighth Commandment says, Thou shalt not steal. Um, uh, in the previous verse, verse 19 and following, uh, when they thought of killing the him, they said, they said after that, we shall say. So attendant to the, to the theme of murder in their hearts was the theme of lying, which is the ninth commandment. We see the ninth commandment transgressed repeatedly throughout this. But here, when we get to verse 23, we see that they stripped him, they stole his coat from him, and they stole his sonship from him. And so the brothers, as it were, they were not, they were not um, happy with simply breaking one of the commandments. Now they, well, having broken one, they, they, they will go down through them and see how many of the, of the ten that they can break uh, through, um, through their wickedness. And so uh, we see that Joseph was saved by Judah. Now Judah, uh, <clears throat> I mean saved by Reuben, and what Reuben had said uh, to him, Reuben was the oldest boy, the oldest son, verse 21. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands. He said, let us not kill him. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit. And that we, basically he was saying, we'll figure out what to do later, but don't kill him right now. And uh, Reuben, uh, Reuben knew something of his father's love, and, and uh, Reuben's Reuben's motivation and his work testified to what the other brothers should have seen, and it testified that the, the virtues of Reuben's speech here testify to the vice of his brothers, and how they their 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 corruption stands out worse because of uh, what his uh, shallow virtues were in trying to save his brother from absolute murder, and. Uh, <clears throat> Now we notice in verse 26, the Jew, Jew, Joseph is down in the pit, and, Ju, and Judah, uh, one of the other brothers, uh, uh, a significant uh, stature within the family, he says in verse 26, um, <clears throat> um, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Now, I love this. Um, his proposal uh, compounds, in a sense, their, their wickedness. He says, uh, it's not enough to kill him, but if they kill him, they should, they should obtain some profit from it. They should obtain some personal gain from it. If they kill him, yes, they can vent their wrath upon Joseph, but what is it to them? What do they go away from the scene of the crime with? Nothing. So Judah supposes or puts forward the idea of selling him. To, these, to this caravan that comes by. How corrupt are these brothers? This is the family of God who were totally mistaken about the dream and what it indicated. They were totally mistaken about everything in this circumstance. And here they are, uh, like the people, uh, like the soldiers around Jesus, uh, gambling for his few garments so that they might obtain some profit at the end. Because they just couldn't do their evil for evil's sake. They had to obtain some profit for it uh, in addition to that. And so <clears throat> uh, that's a, a sin against, that's a, a thievery of, uh, of uh, Joseph's life to sell him into slavery. 
it's a it's a sin against the fifth commandment of honoring those in authority. They should have honored their father. They never should have even thought about doing this, much less do it. And um, um, but they went and they they did it. And uh, and then but then they're left with the aftermath. And in verse thirty one to thirty five, we see that they take Je- Joseph's tunic to their father. And this just compounds everything else. They, they, it wasn't enough that they sold their brother to these pagans into slavery. See, Israel is designed for freedom. Israel is designed to stand before the Lord and live and walk and have their being. And here they sold their brother into slavery to the pagans, to these unbelievers. But that wasn't enough for them. They have to, they have to tidy up the scene of the crime. And so they take the tunic, this coat of many colors, and they dip it in a goat's blood, uh, uh, the kid of a goat, the child, the baby, baby goat. They dip, uh, they they take the blood from the baby goat and they sprinkle it over this tunic and uh, make it a bloody, a bloody testimony. And then they take that to their father, who's in old age already, and they lie to their father, breaking the ninth commandment again, dissembling, pretending. That what they have done is just the happenstance of providence, you might say, and that they sin against God. First four commandments, they sin against the Lord, because who is the God of providence? Who protects us from these kinds of things, from the lion and the bear, except for the living God? And so they go to the father and they say, oh, uh, the son, is this, your, is this your son's garment? Of course they knew it was. Is this your son's garment that's all bloody? What, what could that possibly mean? Of course they knew what it meant. And so here's their, their glorious old father who identifies the garment and then whose mind races wildly into the circumstances that caused this blood to be upon the garment. And old, old Jacob who was practically uh, take, uh, taken to death that day. Um, this um, uh, this is such a, a mess of sin. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever fished, and you've you're trying to learn how to cast the fishing pole. There's a fishing line wrapped upon, wrapped around a reel, and you throw the you throw you're supposed to throw the bait or the weight on the end of the pole into the pond or the stream. And if it's done wrong, that line can become so tangled around the reel, it's called a rat's nest. And if you do that, if you cast the, if you cast, make a bad cast, and you, that, that's the circumstance of your cast, it can take you hours to get that fishing line untangled. I don't know how many of you have ever had that experience. I have as a young boy. And uh, I learned very quickly that the worst thing in the world you can do is be careless in your casting, lest you bring that upon yourself. Uh, the question is now, you see, you see this huge mess that the brothers have created. The question is, is God able in his holy judgment to untangle all of the deceptions of our lives? Is he not able to untangle all these things? Is he not able to see to the very heart of the issue of the envy and the covetousness and the selfishness and the self-love of our own hearts 
as he looks upon us. We go through this life so freely, sinning this way and that way, and especially the dear people of our own families. We go through life doing these kinds of things. Uh, do we really think that we shall survive the, the penetrating scrutiny of God upon these details and developments of our lives? How naive how naive can we possibly be? Even the revelation of the story in, the, in our Bible shows you what God sees. God knows. God sees through the whole thing. Brothers and sisters, the worst part of our sin is that God himself knows it. We might conceal it from our wife. We might conceal it from our children. We might conceal it from our parents. And yet God knows. God sees it. He sees right through the heart of it. He sees that there is no extenuating circumstance that justifies our sin. He sees through to the heart of it, to the, to the jealousy of it, to the self-love of it. Well, there is absolutely no righteous justification at all. And we are left naked before the face of God. And so this, this text, if you, if you turn it over in your mind and as you analyze it, as the Puritans would do, it shows something of the depth of sin, the corruption of it, the, the taint of it, the wickedness of it. We like to excuse ourselves when it comes to our sins. We like to pretend, like the brothers, we like to pretend that this or that is the circumstances, when indeed the circumstances were nothing but evil. There's light and there's darkness. And uh, mo most often in this life, we can see the difference between the two. And the Bible would encourage us to save ourselves, to save ourselves from our own sin, to save ourselves from the heart. Jesus came preaching and he said, the real, the real corruption is not in the thing that you do. It's not in what you touch or feel or something that touches your hand. The real sin is the corruption of your heart. And when you come to grips with the corruption of your heart, that's the time when you cry out in agony, God, save me, God, help me. I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do about myself. When you see the depths of the sin in your heart, it makes you run for a Savior. And I pray that all of us would, be, would, would have this sense by the Holy Spirit of how much we need the help of the living God to save us from our sin because God went before these wicked people. Did he not? He went before these wicked people to provide for them a day of salvation, a day of provision when their famine had brought them near death. And they came to Egypt and there they saw the one that they hated, Joseph, and he opened his arms to them is this not a picture of Christ and his readiness to repair his people? Even in their day of embarrassment, when all things become known, we pray that all of us might see the beauty of God's provision for us, that we might see the beauty of his dream, the gospel of Christ, that we might see the loveliness of that provision and that we might not disdain that provision or spurn it, but that we might reach out and say, 
Oh, Christ, you are mine. I must have you. You are the pearl at great price. You are my end. You are my all. I embrace you with everything that I have within me. Be my Savior and be my God. Our Father and our God, we pray that, that we might be saved from family sin. Indeed, we, I pr we pray that we would be saved from all sin by the only solution, by the only Savior that we might have, and that is Jesus Christ. Oh, God, help us to gaze upon Christ and look upon Christ as that special and unique human being, the Son of God and the Son of Man. Oh, God, help us to see him. Help us not to look upon him like the world looks upon him as just a character uh, about whom a story might be told, but help us to look upon him and see that he is our utter necessity, that we must have him or we die. Bless us with this thing of beauty, O Lord, thine only begotten Son, and what he has done for us to both work up righteousness and to pay the penalty for our sin. In Christ's name we pray, amen.